I was discovering liturgy, which the word liturgia, liturgy, just means the work of the people. And St. Benedict calls it the work of God. So liturgy is the place where the work of the people and the work of God come together in worship. So, so music is a big part of that. When we sing, we pray twice. We can find wisdom in a melody that is even beyond the written word. Welcome to the Christian Music Archive podcast, conversations about Christ, community, and music. I'm your host, Dave Maurer. Today, I get to chat with John Michael Talbot. John Michael and his brother Terry had a southern rock band in the early 70s called Mason Prophet, and they were a pretty big deal. Bands like the Doobie Brothers, Steely Dan, and John Denver were opening acts for Mason Prophet. Eventually, though, John Michael and his brother left the band and rededicated their lives to Christ. John Michael went on to become a Roman Catholic monk and has released 56 solo albums in the past four decades. Besides his music career, though, there are two things that really drew me to wanting to chat with John Michael Talbot. You see, he has chosen to be very intentional about his walk with the Lord and also intentional about living in community. These are both areas that I am interested in developing in my own life, so to be able to learn from an expert is a really amazing opportunity. And it doesn't hurt that John Michael is a really smart guy and a dedicated scholar, but what is even more impressive to me is John Michael's humility and love for God. I appreciate the way he is able to take some of these deep thinking thoughts and distill them down to illustrations that I could understand. This was such a rich conversation, and I'm really looking forward to sharing it with you. But before we listen to that conversation, I want to remind you about the prayer letter I send out every Saturday morning. Each week, I highlight seven artists and ask you to pray for one each day that week. By lifting artists before the Lord, we are partnering with them as they share the gospel. Many of the artists are actually sending us prayer requests, and we can take those to the Father directly. Some of these prayer requests are centered around a specific performance or project. If you're already part of the prayer team, thank you. That is such a vital piece of work that we do. And if you would like to be part of the prayer team, just drop by the website and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. You can do that by going to christianmusicarchive.com prayer. That's christianmusicarchive.com slash prayer. And thanks for joining me in praying for these musicians. Well, I'm honored to welcome to the podcast today John Michael Talbot. John is the founder of the Brothers and Sisters of Charity and has been recording music for over four decades. I can't hardly believe it's been that long. He was one of the uh, first artists signed to Sparrow Records and has been prolific in recording worship music even before worship music was the buzzword it is today. And uh, as of my last count, John, I think you've released 50 albums. So it's with great pleasure that I welcome to the podcast John Michael Talbot. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be with you. It's actually 56 albums. Oh, my goodness. I've lost. I'm missing a few in my records. <laughs> just, I just released one after COVID. So uh, it's called Songs from Solitude. 
Very good. Very good. Well, on this podcast, we typically focus on two different journeys. One is the journey through music, and uh, the more important journey is the journey of faith. And with somebody Mm -hmm. as long-term and prolific as you are, I often struggle knowing where to start in a conversation. So let's just start at the beginning. How did you get started making music? Oh, my family. Uh, My mom was a pianist in the church for her dad, who was a Methodist minister. And my dad was uh, loved music and was in the kind of the primitive expression of what was the Oklahoma Symphony Orchestra. Mm. So music was part of our life. My dad quit playing a lot, but my mom kept playing the piano. So uh, they were great, great enthusiasts. And when I got involved in music when I was eight, they were big, big supporters. And then I started playing professionally in a little folk group that the family had called the Quinn Chords when I was 10. Okay. Then the Beatles came, you know, in on the scene, and at 12, we went out and won the Indiana Battle of the Bands uh, at the State Fair Contest. We won a record contract. Oh, wow. Then from there, we went on and kind of went through the evolution of all the rock bands into, you know, psychedelia and all that stuff. Yeah. Jimi Hendrix, Eric Clapton, and, and, um, and then, of course, the stuff coming out of San Francisco. And our producer said, gee, why don't you guys do country rock? Uh, the birds have started doing country rock. So, mm-hmm. Johnny, you play banjo, and Terry, you play great acoustic guitar. So why don't you try that? So we did. I got a pedal steel guitar and kind of learned how to play it. It's kind of embarrassing, those first records, but I was trying. <laughs> Terry being your older brother, right? Yeah, and my older brother. Yeah. And we had a you know our band, which were all schoolmates, and... We went on and, and got a record contract, ended up doing five records for Warner Brothers, and we're one of those almost famous bands, basically because we were together all the time. The doobies leapfrogged over us with listens to music, which they had to promote. Mm-hmm. And then uh, by the time they were really to promote us, ready to promote us, we had just we I mean we were together twenty four seven. You roomed with the guys. Yeah. You ate with the guys. You traveled with the guys. You played on stage with the guys. It was you and and so we were just tired of being around each other after five years. <laughs> but Terry and I left and did an album called The Talbot Brothers, which Warner Brothers got very angry with because they thought the record was a hit and they wanted it to be Mason Prophet. And mm. but we just didn't want to do Mason Prophet anymore. So. Right. So that was it. We left, and I was already, I accepted Christ when I was uh, 17 in 1971, after my Christian upbringing and falling away from it. And so we, uh, I started with, with Billy Ray Hearn with Sparrow Records. I did two early records with them. Then I became a Catholic. Mm-hmm. I thought, well, that's it. My career is over, you know, because evangelicals don't like Catholics. And I... I gave him a record called The Lord's Supper, which was the Mass. Right. And he said, how am I going to sell a Catholic Mass to a bunch of Southern Baptists? I said, I don't know. It's my last record. Just put it out. They put it out. And I moved into a hermitage at a Franciscan retreat center as a hermit. And the record became the biggest record in Christian music that year. Yeah. And then after that, I, I, it happened again. I did Come to the Quiet, which was just kind of fooling around with quiet stuff and gave it to the record company and they said, well, this is terrible. It's not going to sell, but you just had a hit. So we'll put it out and they put it out and it sold three times more. That's incredible. Yeah. And then, and then everything just began to unfold and I've done, ended up doing 
on my 56 record. I thought I was going to stop at 55, and <laughs> I got creative under COVID, and so I did one more. I don't know whether I'll do any more. Well, you know, one of the things that I read somewhere is that you had quite, like you said, you were born into a Methodist family, but uh, was it the rock and roll lifestyle that led you astray, or what was it that caused you to start your search on what truth was? Yeah, yeah. basically, we were a nominal Methodist family. Uh, I was never confirmed, for instance, in the Methodist church. So uh, I started falling away pretty soon, probably around 10 to 12 years old. Music became my god. And the lifestyle was, you know, rock and roll and uh, we didn't do a lot of wild and crazy stuff. If you look at pictures of us, we wore the buckskins and mm-hmm. you know, long hair, and we kind of scared the groupies, I think. <laughs> but, but you know, there was a lot of there was a lot of dope in the band, and uh, there was some sexual stuff. But we weren't as wild as most bands, and I was kept from it. The Lord kept me from doing drugs even once, and. I got drunk twice in my life that I know of. <laughs> so, um, and I fooled around a little bit sexually, but I was extremely conservative by rock standards of the day. So God really kept me pretty, pretty pure, but he let me get soiled enough that I realized that it didn't work. That way of life didn't work. So I just it ended up turning back. First I went into Eastern religion and, uh, philosophy, and I liked it. Everything I was reading was really neat, but I, I didn't really have an encounter or an experience. And that happened one night. I was praying, God, are you he, or she, or an it? I don't care. I just want to know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had an experience with Jesus. And from that point on, I came back to Christianity. The Jesus movement was in full swing. Um, we kind of fellowshiped with Jesus music people. A little bit back in 71 and 72. Terry accepted Christ again in 72. Or right at 71 or 72, right in there. For a little bit after I did. Okay. And, uh, you know, I, the stories were that when Bernie left the Eagles, and we were touring with the Eagles, we toured with everybody. Uh-huh. Um, and they considered us for the Eagles, but they kind of were, they didn't really much like our Christianity. Mm. So. And I look back on that decision and I go, praise God, that kept us from a world of hurt. Yeah. So I was grateful for that. The place I am right now is trying to learn how to be more intentional about why I walk with God. And so mm. when I'm trying to learn how to do something, I try to go to an expert. Like if I need to fix my leaky sink, I go to somebody who has experience in plumbing. So this next batch of questions for me is looking at talking with somebody who has been intentionally focused on seeking Christ. And when I think of somebody in a monastic lifestyle, as you have chosen, I think mm-hmm. of somebody who s- intentionally sets time to be with Christ and to learn from him. What what does that look like for you? Well, I mean, my day starts at about 4.30 or so, and spend the first couple hours, few hours in prayer, go up for common prayer with the community at 7, and we either have a, a morning prayer service or a communion service. Um, some days we have a mass if there's a priest with us. We have a priest that comes out three days a week. And then we, we go in to, you know, quiet, uh, but we also go into work. So, for instance, I to, this morning you're interviewing me in the morning, 
and I was hearing Brother Francis up the hill taking up all the autumn leaves, you know. And mm-hmm. So uh, he worked, you know, and I worked this morning. I got out my guitar, and believe it or not, I got out my banjo. I wanted to just keep my banjo chops up. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I was playing banjo, and, and then I read a little bit of the Church Fathers. I, I'm reading two things. I'm going through the Paradise of the Fathers, which is the Desert Fathers and Mothers, from the Coptic perspective, or the Egyptian perspective. And then I read another book on afterlife called The Orthodox Afterlife. And again, it's an Orthodox Christian perspective of the afterlife. Mm-hmm. And then you called. so uh, <laughs> and, I, and then I go up for noon prayer around noon, and that's followed by a meal. And then in the afternoon, there's a little rest period, quiet time, and then we go back to work until about 4.30. At 5.30, we come together for uh, evening prayer, followed by meals. And then the evening is for recreation and also for prayer. So uh, in our common prayers in the Roman Church, we go through the 150 Psalms every month. Mm. The original monastic tradition was you did that daily. And I still do a good portion of that by bringing in uh, the Egyptian or the Coptic prayer. And I like to pray. It's called the Ashbeah or the Hours. So it's a good, good chunk of Psalms. Uh, that I add to the Roman breviary or the Roman uh, divine office, which okay. is mainly the altar. So I, I, I put scripture reading together with it. There's a lot of Bible, a lot of scripture. Looking at, in my case, I would look at periodically, I kind of ebb and flow and go through the different periods of monastic history. Right now I'm heavy into the to the Egyptian desert fathers and mothers. But there'll be other times when I'm into Benedictine tradition or or the hermits of the 11th century, or the Franciscan tradition, you know. So, so I focus on different things as the spirit kind of leads me through those things. So it's important to do lexio divina or reading. There are there are traditionally four levels. Um, you start with lexio divina, so you do sacred reading or sacred study. Then there's oratio or prayer, so unite that with prayer. And then comes meditatio or meditation, where you actually uh, begin to visualize and to see in your mind what you're reading, not, not in, a, in just the use of the imagination, but in a prayerful way that's focused on the Lord. And then that quietly passes over into contemplatio or contemplation. Okay which is beyond words or images or ideas or forms. You simply be with the one who is. It's complete uh, complete rest or what's called hezekiah mm-hmm. or sacred stillness. And at that point, the mind kind of quiets. It doesn't ever, you never stop thinking. Right. But it kind of gets quiet and it gets focused so that you can really see what's going on. It's likened to a pond that's agitated, as most of our lives are. <laughs> right. Uh, and when you're still, when you enter into Hezekiah or a sacred stillness, the minds and, and the emotions and the body, they still, they, they get quiet. And it's like the sediment falling to the bottom of the pond, and suddenly the water that was agitated gets very clear. And the surface, which could only reflect a fractured image, now it becomes very, very uh, consistent like a mirror, and it can reflect the image of God more beautifully. So this whole process of prayer, that's what it's all about. 
monasticism, it comes from the word monos in Greek, and it just means alone and one. Anytime you hear in Scripture that Jesus was alone, mm-hmm. the word is monos. Okay. And then he goes to the wilderness, and the word in Greek in Scripture is eremos, where we get the word eremite uh, in Greek, which translates to Latin, or excuse me, to to hermit in English. Okay. So the word hermit uh, comes from the desert or the wilderness, mm-hmm. and the word monk comes from monos, which means alone. So as through history that's been done in different ways, some people go off literally alone, right. caves and whatnot. Some people enter into colonies of hermits where they spend time in solitude during the week, and they come together on Saturday and Sunday for uh, a Eucharistic liturgy or a Mass, as we would call it, or divine liturgy in the East, and also for fellowship and also for spiritual teaching and conferences. That would happen on Saturdays and Sundays. And then they would go back to their their cells and spend the week in, in work, they, the early desert fathers, they made baskets or weaved mats and sold those. Right. And so they worked and they prayed. So as Benedict says, it's ora, prayer, at labora, which is work. So pray and work. Right. And then the third kind of monastic life goes to St. Pacomius of the Desert in Egypt and also to Benedict in the West and St. Basil in the East. And that's where the community is together and lives a very intentionally uh, communal life. So you pray together a few times a day, you eat together a few times a day, you work together. So that's the third kind. So the word monk, monos, one and alone, either means one and alone literally or one and alone together. Right. So you go into the eremos, into a secluded place, and you live uh, for God and God alone, either by yourself or together. And in our community's case, it's a combination of those things. Okay. So we live what's called the colony life or the semi-aeromedical way of life. And in the West, the way that's come down to us is we pray together three times a day. We have one meal together every day. And then people go off and do their work, sometimes together, sometimes by themselves. And they have quite a bit of time in their own hermitage. Okay. So we are... Uh, technically, we are a hermitage and a monastery. Okay. Does it make any sense? Uh, it does, yeah. And and actually... A lot of information really fast. It, I'm so sorry. That, no, that's fine, because one one of the things that I've often thought about in my own personal walk is is the time in my prayer closet, whether that's you know in bed before I get up mm-hmm. or literally in a closet or on my knees, is such a valuable time. And, and I, I often wonder, why don't I spend more time doing that? And then I think of of folks like you who make that your your life's focus and goal, my question is, how would you recommend for those of us who uh, do have responsibilities that are that draw us away from having that focus? Uh, yeah. I think of the scripture in Thessalonians that says, "Never stop praying," or in Philippians four that says, "Rejoice always." And I find yeah. it difficult to do those as I'm focusing on my tasks for the day, my job, my family, uh, whatever. Thessalonians also says those who weren't, who, who don't work don't eat. Well, that's, <laughs> well, there's that too. And, and that's quoted quite a bit in monastic life, by the way, to those who think that they want to be spiritual all the time and not chip in and work. They go, okay, great. No food for you. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
so how do you do it? Well, basically, I recommend that people take 20 to 30 minutes a day, once or twice a day. <clears throat> and either at the beginning of the day or the end of the day or both. And if you can only choose one, do the morning because it's quiet. If you can't do the morning, do the evening. Just But do it. And in that 20 or 30 minutes, it takes the body about 20 minutes to cycle down into stillness. Uh, this has actually been medically proven when people meditate. It takes about 20 minutes. Okay. So it's going to be 20 to 30 minutes, a couple of times a day. Sit down, be still, still your body, don't move around. Still your breathing, get a little quiet. Um, you know, the Spirit of God is the breath of God, the Ruach in Hebrew or the Numa in Greek. Um, and, and basically then begin to focus on God's Word clearly without distraction. And if the distractions come, <clears throat> you basically, this, I, this is a variation from a book called The Cloud of Unknowing in the West. And I say, see it like a rock your distraction coming at you and okay here comes your mind is wandering okay good okay that's normal now just quietly just tilt your head to the side and let it go past mm. don't throw don't throw fuel on the fire and get real agitated about the fact that you're <laughs> getting distracted because everybody gets distracted right so you just let it okay here's my distraction okay jesus i give you that okay next now back to the word of god and it keeps you from from just making it worse. Because a lot of people, when they get distracted in prayer, uh, they get very uptight and they get very obsessive. And then they get very scrupulous. The word mm. scruples is where we get scrupulous. And in Latin, that means a pebble. So it's like a pebble that gets caught in your shoe. Yeah. Not a big thing. It's a little thing, but it can keep you from walking comfortably yeah. or running. So you get the pebble, get the scrupulosity out of your prayer life. You know, don't be scrupulous. Yeah. Focus on the big things. Major on the majors, not on the minors. And when you do that over and over and over, well, then the little stuff gets worked out in its own time. Yeah. The other thing the fathers say is is go step by step into the kingdom of God. Um if I always use the example of, of broad jumping. If you try to broad jump too far, you fall back on your backside. Uh -huh. So go step by step. And if you do that day by day, month by month, year by year, you'll discover that after a while you've traveled a long, long distance. Mm -hmm. But if you try to jump it all at once, you're never going to make it. You're, you're going to end up just falling down. Yeah. And the other thing is, uh, and I, I think this was actually put into a song by the guy that wrote Butterfly Kisses long ago. Oh, yeah. Bob Carlisle, sure. was that his name? Yeah. He wrote a song called We Fall Down and We Get Up. Yeah. <clears throat> when a guy asks about what goes on in monasteries, and they say, well, we fall down and we get up. And that actually does go back to a desert father story with a young monk that's struggling with fornication, the temptation to fornication. So he's having a sexual fantasy. He can't stop it. And he goes to his, you know, to the old man, to the to the spiritual father, and he says, what do you do? And he says, well, if you fell down, get up. So he did, and he comes back, and he says, well, I fell down, I got up, and then I fell down again. He says, what do I do? And he says, well, get back up. <laughs> right. And he says, well, how long am I going to do this? He says, your whole life. <laughs> you know, it's, you, you fall down and you get up. It's okay. Yeah. That's part of the process. 
that's part of the salvation journey is we're sinners and so we fall down but then we get back up and as long as you keep getting back up and turning towards the lord you're going to be just fine but if you fall down and go oh that's it you know this thing don't work well you're already in hell you know you're already in despair and discouraged so you just stay there as i've been talking with folks on this podcast i've been um, struck by how many times people talk about it's the falling down where your growth actually comes you know, it, it's yeah. learning how to deal with getting back up again. That is how the Lord helps teach you new skills so that you fall down less often. Well, and it also teaches you this thing called humility. Humility, which in English comes from humus, which means earth. I'm reminded of the story uh, in the Franciscan tradition in the 13th century where Brother Elias, you know, was the head of the order after Francis died. And, and Brother Giles and some of the guys that lived with Francis longer were hanging around. It ended up, long story short, Brother Elias, who was a papal envoy to you know the emperor and stuff, he fell and he was excommunicated. And uh, Brother Giles heard that and he jumped down on the ground and he started you know groveling around in the dirt. And they said, Giles, what are you doing? He says, well... You know, he was up so high and he fell. And he says, I want to get as close to the earth as I can get so when I fall, I don't have far to go. (laughs) And so humility is being brought to the earth and never forgetting that we're sinners. And the word sin, hamartia, there's several Greek words, but the main one is hamartia. It means basically to get off the path and to get tangled up in the weeds, you know, Uh off the path. Here in Arkansas, we have a lot of briars and brambles if you get off the path in the woods. Right. And so constantly, especially in monastic prayers, you're you're filled with these Kyrie eleisons, the Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy. I'm a sinner. Yeah. So every day we're reminded I'm a sinner. And the prayers, the Coptic prayers remind us, you know, keep me from those that I've committed willfully and unwillfully those that I know about and those I don't. And the psalmist says, keep me from my secret sins. So I'm doing stuff probably right now talking to you where my ego's involved. And I don't even know what's happening while it's happening. But but a little later I go, oh man, John Michael, you were such a jerk in that that podcast. You know, you were such a know-it-all talking like you know what you're talking about. So we, we sin all the time, and so just be in touch with that, and it brings you to the earth, and it, and it brings you to the cross. Mm. And it's only through the cross of Jesus Christ that we find the resurrection. Yeah. And, and eventually those cease to be two experiences. They become one mystical experience. When I am crucified, I am, then I'm experiencing new life. When I die, it's in that dying, it's in it not after it, but in it, that I actually begin to experience what it is to be resurrected, to be born again, to be a child. And so when we're born again, we become children. We don't become, you know, here I am, 66 years old and been in monastic life for 40 more years, 42 years, I guess now. Um, You know, so I can get pretty haughty about that. No, I'm a child. In monasticism, the hood 
what was called the cow, was actually given to monks by an angel in Egypt because that was the headdress of infants. Uh-huh. And so monks were supposed to wear the headdress of little babies to remind them that they are babies, they're uh-huh. children of God, you know, to be childlike. You don't want to be childish, right. as, as Hebrew says, but you do want to be childlike, which is what Jesus teaches. Yes. The fact that we're made sons of God, that that also illum, uh, points to that child relationship with the Heavenly Father. Yeah, we're to be children of God. Yeah. Children yeah. of and And to such belong the kingdom of God, Jesus yeah. would say. So when we are childlike, when we are humble, here's the deal, though. If you try to be humble, you're going to mess it up. I was just going to bring that up because you had you had posted a really good video on this a few days back about the if you know you're humble, you're not. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's just that simple. You know, Jesus says, learn from me for I am meek and humble of heart. So there are things that we can do like, okay, get to the back of the line. Don't stand in the front. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, those are things that we can do. Okay, be quiet. Somebody else is talking. Be quiet. Those are things we can learn, but generally the monastic adage is you only learn humility through humiliation, hmm. and and you can't control those. Those things happen, you know. Hmm. It's like walking into a room and your zipper's down. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, hey, by the way, your zipper's down. Yeah. You need to zip back up, bud. And and it's humiliating, yeah. right? Yeah. Right. Or you eat something. I've got this big beard and mustache. You eat something, and there, there it is, hanging out over at the side of my mustache. You know, you know. And I've just done a TV show, and somebody says, "Hey, John, you know that tuna fish sandwich you ate is over <laughs> on the side of my mustache." Well, that's humiliating. Yeah. But how do you respond to that? If if you if you allow yourself to be brought low in that and to be a child and then to walk in that child likeness all the time. That's what Christianity is about, mm-hmm. and that, by the way, is what monasticism is about, to learn how to be a child of God, to be childlike, right. to, be, to, to become a man or a woman with no guile. And again, you can't manipulate it, you can't force it. Those kinds of lessons, I'm convinced, are learned through decades of living the life. There's a there's another Desert Father story of a of a young man who was trying to teach, and one of the older monks comes up to him, and he goes, "Son, he says, you're like a person who hasn't even put their baggage on the ship yet. Huh. You're telling everybody about how good it is to sail and where the destination is." Oh, interesting. He says, you haven't even put your baggage on, on, on the ship, and you haven't even gotten on board. <laughs> so that, he says, that's what it's like when young people try to teach before they've really had the life experience that gives them the authority to teach. It only comes from that life experience. And that's a hard lesson, because I, I started monastic life when I was 24, and I was placed into a position where I had to teach, you know, in concerts. And right. people would ask me about this, that, and the other. And I'd, sometimes they'd want me to do seminars. And, you know, I did my best. But I, I was probably like that kid that hadn't put his baggage on the ship yet. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I probably still am. <laughs> well, if the truth be told, we'll probably be there until we actually sit at Jesus's feet, and then we'll really realize how minuscule we are in his well, presence. Well, yeah, because after we die, we, God is beyond time and space. Yeah. So we move into a place beyond time and space, and we will know as we are known. So suddenly, I will know myself for the first time, really, in my life. I will know myself completely because I will know myself as God knows me. Yeah. And, you know, we have in the Protestant world, they call this the believer's judgment. And in the Catholic world, they call it purgatory. In the Eastern Christian world, they call it the toll booze. But no matter what you call it or, or how you theologically couch it, the matter is, is that, that I'm going to see a lot of stuff in my own life. I'm going to see it. I'm going to see my sins for the first time. I know God is going to see them and I'm going to be in his presence. And I'm going to know that everybody there sees it too. Yeah. And I'm going to go, oops. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. And the good news is, is that if I have that relationship with Jesus, that becomes a salvific experience. Right. It doesn't become a judgment experience. It's a salvific experience. Yeah. So, you know, the good news is that I don't have to stay the jerk I am when I die. That <laughs> <laughs> Jesus actually lets me grow in him yeah. uh, as we move into, into eternity. And that's our home. Yeah. This here, we're just waiting for the bus down here, man. We're just practicing. This is practice for the concert. The concert is later. Right. Well, that brings up an interesting kind of segue into my next question is, obviously music has played an important part of your worship, and I kind of alluded to this in our intro, that you were really playing worship music before the buzzword worship music that we have today is is what it is. So how has music played a part of your being an intentional seeker of God? Well, I guess early on it was a big part um, because I was discovering I was discovering liturgy, which the word liturgia, liturgy, just means the work of the people, and Saint Benedict calls it the work of God. So liturgy is the place where the work of the people and the work of God come together in worship, and um, so so music is a big part of that because. Traditional liturgical music, whether it was in the Old Testament or in the early church, or even in the churches developed in the East and the West, most of liturgy is, is music. Uh, when we sing, we pray twice, as Saint Augustine says, mm. and and we can we can find wisdom in a melody that is that is even beyond the written word. And keep in mind that the mystical traditions of the world believe that God sang the world into existence. Mm. That 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 um gosh, this gets really metaphysical, I suppose, <laughs> but um essentially everything begins to vibrate when you speak. So everything is vibration, right? Um atoms, molecules, it's all vibrating. And they all vibrate in different ways and at different speeds, and that forms creation. Mm -hmm. So a tree is vibrating one way, and rocks are vibrating another way. The human being is vibrating another way. Um, so it's all about vibration, and that's music. I, I, I won't tell you who said this because they're still alive, but a person saw heaven, and we asked them, we said, what's heaven like? And they said, well, I saw sound 
and heard color. Interesting. And I went, whoa. Yeah. You know, so music is is a very big very big part of that. But as I've grown into these latter years of my life, and the Lord's allowed me through sickness to see the other side once. And the music that I long for now, my friend, cannot be found in earthly music. Uh It's too limiting. So the music that I long for is heavenly music, and I can best find it in silence. Mm. So that's just where I am right now. I still make music. I mean... I, I did this record, especially with COVID and kind of this forced cloister that everybody was under right. and still is. Um, and so I started writing music. Uh, and nowadays it's difficult to release music because it's all streamed, which right. kind of kills the the economic base from which you can make music. But the so I I did it and and you know I found well okay I'm writing so I know how to write music I can turn around and write projects and produce them and I know how to do all that yeah. but it no longer has no long things no longer have much of a taste for me interesting uh, even even spiritual teaching I've read so much of it I've studied so much of it that I read it and I go yeah okay I know that. I read scripture and I go, yeah, okay, got it. Church fathers, yeah, okay, got it. You know, monastic mystics, yeah, okay, got it, studied that. And so I find that earth has no pull on me, even the the things of religion on the face of the earth. I'm ready for heaven. I'm ready to go uh, because that's our lasting home. Yeah. That's what That's what we're made for. You know, this is not what we're made for. This is a world that fell. Yeah. And and what we're made for is eternity. The new heavens and the new earth. So there'll be music. Yep. But it's music unlike anything we have even yet dreamt of. Uh it's beyond what we can possibly expect or imagine. So what awaits of God. We haven't even imagined it yet. We haven't even been able to put it in our imagination what's waiting for us. Yeah. And that's where we're going. Oh, that's exciting. I, I yeah. can't wait. I can't wait. <laughs> yeah, and that's eternity. This is time. So this is right. This is the wink of an eye, boy. Yep. Heaven, that's that's what we're made for. Yeah. So here we're just we're just getting up after we fall down. We've talked quite a bit about your intentionality in walking with Christ, but you've also made another intentional decision and that is to live in community. You founded the Brothers and Sisters of Charity. That's the community you're uh, chosen to live in. To me, community should be an important part of our daily life. This was uh, really made evident to me this week after the election when I saw a severely divided country. And uh, regardless of which side of the fence you stand on, there's just a division and a gap between us. And I have just been crying out for community and and trying to understand what it means as a Christian to be part of community. And yesterday it hit me, you know, part of the word community is unity. And I'd mm-hmm. never thought of that before. And so your encouragement for us to be living and working in community is, I think, one of the big answers to helping us provide some unity for our country. And- uh, yeah, I mean, newsflash, this is not a—we are not a Christian culture anymore. So that train left the station a long time ago. 
about two decades ago, really. And so we are no longer in a Christian culture, so we have to exist as Christians in a secularized and godless or even paganized kind of culture, and that's just where we live now. And we have to figure out ways to stay strong, and at the same time, we have to figure out ways to reach out to people where they are, like the father goes out to the prodigal son as soon as he sees a glimmer of repentance. Right. And so we have to figure out how to go out to the people of this culture. We can no longer presuppose that they have Christian moral basis, uh, foundations right. because they don't. And, and how to minister to them where they are and love them. So we have people come to the monastery who are not necessarily Christian. Some of them don't have any faith at all, but they just love to come because it's peaceful. So uh, you have to figure out how to do that. And that's going to be our challenge as we go into the future. Sure is. The election is, I don't know, uh, I know this sounds flip, but um, I don't care. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what I care about is Jesus. Yes. And, you know, uh, we're in this terrible two-party system in this country, which I think is terrible. I think is a terrible trap. And we've been stuck in it as a nation for a long time now. Um, so neither party represents Catholic morality. I know that. Yeah. Um, some represent it a little better. Some represent the non-negotiables that we would consider uh, pro-life, religious freedom, and protection of the traditional family. So those are non-negotiables. But, but neither party represents uh all of our morality, which gets into what's called prudential judgments, things about like immigration. Well, everybody agrees we ought to fix it, but they have differing opinions on how to do it. Right. Those are prudential judgments. I don't make a judgment call against somebody who might have a different opinion from me about how to do that. I, I recognize their faith. So we're, we're in a position today where we have to focus on Jesus. Yeah. He is the king and the scepter of the wicked shall not rest over the land of the just. So the, so the way to get great leaders is, first of all, to get a just nation. And the way you get a just nation is not by some big program. It's by, by ministering to people person to person, heart to heart, relationship by relationship. And when, when people change, and I know this is a cheap quote from Jesus of Nazareth, but I believe it, when people change, Nations change. So the way we change our nation is person to person, person to person, reaching out to the folks who are lost and not condemning them, not putting them down, not screaming at them or arguing with them, but simply bringing the love of Jesus Christ in a way that they've never experienced. And then they ask us, what about that... Why do you have this moral teaching? Oh, that's part of love. Oh, that's part of truth. And it becomes something that's appealing and not something that's just dogmatic. Yeah. And that's the way you win hearts. Well, John Michael, I know you have to go and, uh, and you've got some other responsibilities. I sure appreciate your time. But one last thing, we send out a prayer letter to uh, folks uh, that have agreed to pray for the artists that are making music and that have made music. How can we be praying for you in these coming weeks? Oh, goodness. Well, uh, 
just pray for me. I'm, I'm, you know, 66 years old. I'm not checking out yet, but I'm certainly not 30 anymore or 40 <laughs> or 50. Right. So, uh, you know, pray for me and pray for my health. Pray for our monastic community. It's exciting. I mean, we're the only integrated monastic expression in, in the United States where we have celibate monks, we have celibate nuns, singles who can marry and families. This is a very typical kind of model in Europe nowadays, uh, but we're the only one of our kind here in the United States. So uh, I feel it's a, it's a model for the future, and I think we are fast heading into a period in our culture where we are not only being marginalized, we are being demonized, and we will soon be persecuted. Yes. So communities like this are becoming more and more important. We are having more and more people, even since COVID, coming by, people making visits. So we have a guest house, and we have a lot of people coming to volunteer and coming to live uh, for extended periods of time. So this, I think, is the future for the church in Western culture. Yeah. Uh, because you try to live it on your own, and it's next to impossible. The 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 the, the oppression, the temptations, uh, sometimes the flat-out persecution is just too much. So people find strength in community. So uh, pray for our community. I told you that would be rich. I really appreciate being the beneficiary of John Michael Talbot's years of study and experience around being intentional with both Jesus and community, and I hope that I can use some of his wisdom and techniques in my own life. As the interviewer and editor of this podcast, I've got to listen to his suggestions multiple times, and each time I've picked up another little nugget. Maybe you'd want to do that, too. But whatever method you use, whatever flavor of church you prescribe to, I would encourage you to be deliberate and intentional about making time for Christ every day. And I firmly believe that out of that time, you will find the importance of being deliberate and intentional about being in community. Now, that may look different from what John Michael Talbot does in his Brothers and Sisters of Charity, but I'm certain that God will help you find and invest in your own community. It might be your neighbors, your work, your church, or something altogether different. But whatever your community does look like, be deliberate and purposeful in investing in those around you. Well, thanks for listening to the podcast today. If you find these conversations helpful and interesting, I'd love for you to be a partner with me by going to patreon.com slash ccmexchange. This is the community of people that help with writing questions for the artists, providing feedback about how to improve the show, and yes, helping fund this project. I'm looking for 10 people to agree to send $5 a month to help cover the hosting and marketing costs associated with this podcast. Would you be one of those 10 people? Head on over to patreon.com slash ccmexchange and you can help out today. And thanks in advance for your support. And also, thanks for listening today. Thank you for rating this podcast on your favorite podcast app. Boy, that sure helps us spread the news. Until next week, remember that God loves you. In fact, he's crazy about you. <laughs>